University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. I don't know about you, but this last weekend I ate more than my fair share. Uh, I was telling uh, Bud and, and Gay before worship, we bought this pumpkin pie from Costco that I think was about this, this big around. We only really got about a quarter of the way into it. Tis the season for eating special treats. So it's weird if you go somewhere and somebody offers to you a, a plain sugar cookie like this. Not that there's anything wrong with a plain sugar cookie, but... Why just have something plain when you can have something profound? Take, for example, the Nutella therapy cookie. Now, if you don't know what Nutella is, I'm going to go ahead and warn you, don't start now, because it's the most addictive substance on earth. Imagine the combination of hazelnut and chocolate and sugar all mixed together. Now, imagine that goodness filling the inside of a warm chocolate chip cookie with a cold glass of milk. I don't think I'm going to pass on that. That's some goodness filled within me. Lucky for you, this is the last Sunday we are talking about filled food because this is the last Sunday we are in our Brimming Bucket series. For the last three months, we've been talking about how Christ desires to fill our lives with goodness. Our lives are like a bucket. We have the choice each day to either empty our bucket or to fill it up, to either fill up the buckets of others or to empty it. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, calls them to fill their lives with goodness, grace, love, peace, and forbearance. So we turn finally for the last time to our text in Colossians 3, in which Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another of any grievances you have against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since members of one body, you are called to peace and be thankful. The Apostle Paul is known for his laundry list. Sometimes his laundry list in his letters include Uh, vile, horrible, deplorable, and to avoid sins, the no-no list, if you will. But then at other times, Paul gives a laundry list of things that we see here, the things that we've gone through the last three months. Now, there is one piece that is missing that often is found in other laundry lists of Paul, like, for example, the fruits of the Spirit we find in Galatians chapter 5. It's the term joy. Yes, we're talking about the type of joy in which Jeremiah was a bullfrog. What is joy? The first thought when I think of joy comes to people who are just overly happy all the time. That just sounds exhausting. If you're not a happy, naturally person, there's always that one friend who's around you that you really love them to death, but you need them to take a a sip of, just calm down the bubbliness just a little bit, please. As one author put it, a pessimist gets nothing but pleasant surprises, an optimist nothing but unpleasant. And yet the Bible talks a lot about joy. 
In fact, between the word rejoice and joy, they appear over 500 times in the Bible. Now, you compare that 500 to the 136 times it talks about believing, 221 times it talks about love, 121 times it talks about sin, and 118 times it talks about grace. The Bible talks about joy a lot. In fact, the majority of the time it talks about joy comes from the Old Testament in which it is the narrative of the Hebrew people facing enslavement and freedom, the struggle to worship the right God and to establish a kingdom, the bombardment and dominance of the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Romans, along with the exile, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Not exactly the circumstances in which you want to say, rejoice in the Lord. The word Paul uses here for joy is found uh, in the fruits of the Spirit. It's that, it's that Greek word kara, which, which means gladness or recognition of grace. That's a curious phrase, recognition of grace. There's a story from the Old Testament that reminds me of joy. It's the story of Hannah, except Hannah isn't exactly the character you think of, of joy. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10, it tells us the story. Now, the beginning of the story, it, it does not look like ideal circumstances because it says that Hannah is one of two wives of a man named Elkanah. Um, can I get polygamy for 500, Alex? <laughs> the thought of having two wives just doesn't seem like ideal circumstances. I have spent a lifetime not understanding women because I am limited in my mind, and I can't imagine what this man was thinking with surrounding himself with two brilliant women in his life. And yet he chooses to do this. Now the circumstances that this man chose to do this was because that his wife Hannah was not able to produce, produce a child. Now we need to understand in this day and time to not produce a child was viewed as a curse from God, you've done something against God, was viewed as a failure, but more importantly it was grounds for divorce. So we learn something about Akana in this moment, that he doesn't choose to dismiss his wife, but instead he chooses to take on another wife to produce a child for him. That matters. We learn that Hannah is a woman of strife, she is a woman of sorrow, but Elkanah loves her more than he loves his other wife. And because of that, this other wife is very disruptive, she's, she's mean, she's dispiriting towards Hannah. So Hannah is a person who is not only in physical turmoil, not being able to produce a child, she's in emotional and spiritual turmoil about the circumstances she is facing. She's experiencing brokenness. She's downhearted. Now, we quickly learn that Elkanah is not exactly the brightest crayon in the box because he says to his wife, am I not good enough for you? Why are you downhearted? Pastoral care moment for the second. When someone is facing sorrow and heartache, when they're facing things like infertility, don't think that you have to say something to them. More importantly, don't say idiotic things to them, like God has a plan for this, or all things are going to work out for good. Simply being present in people's lives matters in that moment. But we learn that Hannah is a woman of sorrow. She's facing unthinkable circumstances. I wonder if we can connect with Hannah. Not necessarily in her physical brokenness, though some in this space might be able to connect with childbearingness. But 
at times we might feel barren in our lives emotionally and spiritually and mentally. Sometimes it's a multiplicity of things that, that bring all this up, work and relationships, careerism, finances and illness, unfulfilled hopes, we can go on and on. And with this is disappointment and loss and discouragement and tragedy and setback and frustration. The inexplicable gambit of misery and trials and despair come from broken friendships and unexpected death, medical diagnosis, injustice, job loss, inner emotional turmoil, loneliness, the the hidden tide of depression, and so much more. And this is all accompanied with feelings of hurt and disappointment and grief and anxiety and hollowness and fear and despair. Human misery and sadness are universal, no matter the context or time in history. That's a dark and lonely place. It's a place of discouragement and a place of anguish. And so we turn to the actual context of our story in 1 Samuel, where Elkanah and his family are in a place called Shiloh in a time of worship. Hannah is overcome by the raw emotion of this present state of circumstances, yet she finds it within her to go to the tabernacle to pray to God in her anguish. And verse 10 says this, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will look only on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, despite the circumstances she is facing, despite the brokenness she is feeling in her life, she believes that God can make a difference. And she, she makes a vow to God. But Hannah is not asking God for a child in order to increase her wealth or to ask God to simply just improve her general well-being. Instead, she promises this unique thing in which she says, I will give this child back to you. God bless me so that I can turn around and use this blessing for you. Hannah's praying for a child. She's praying out of the very depths of her longing. She's standing there in the most holy place the people had, worshiping God, praying out of this emotional turmoil, And then verse 12 happens. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Okay, the Bible has a sense of humor. (laughs) And we need to understand that this woman is out of her anguish praying to God, but she's not audibly actually saying anything out loud. And so the old priest, Eli, comes into the tabernacle, sees this woman, and thinks that she's a babbling drunk idiot and tries to dismiss her from the tabernacle. But in the moment, he's going to quickly realize she is in no such state because it says in verse 15, Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace and may the Lord God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. I love how the narrator says in verse 18 that she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. It wasn't that she received this child, that Hannah was relieved and renewed by the presence of God, 
but it was this interaction and moment in prayer where she believed that God had her best interest at heart. Her physical turmoil is changed in this moment. She receives hope and joy from her faith in God. And God does act and move in a physical way. You see, Hannah returns with her family to the gathering place. Elkanah is probably confused how his wife left in turmoil, and now she returns in this better uh, emotional state. The couple returns home. We learn, biblically speaking, they watch Netflix, and nine months later, she has a baby. My millennials in the room got what that meant. She names him Samuel, which means, because I asked the Lord for him. A small and profound commentary from the text. Did you notice the narrator, the narrator said that, that Hannah named the boy? You see, in this patriarchal society, it would have been the husband that named the child, yet we learn in this moment just how much of a humble person that Elkanah really is, that he recognizes the leadership within his wife to take charge in this moment. It's a rare moment we see in the patriarchy of the Old Testament. And everything comes full circle for Hannah. She's gone from complete anguish to hopeful promise to overwhelming joy and promises fulfilled. I love how one commentator put it, Hannah's faithful longing could birth a new voice of faith to guide God's people. The kind of deep longing that brings our brave and honest prayers to the surface has the roots in the depths of God's kingdom. God uses our passions to build anew. God has done this. God has taken her brokenness and made her whole. We must recognize that, that Jesus teaches us that if we're seeking first the kingdom of God, if that's the primary motivation in our life, then we merely need to seek, ask, and knock, and God will help and help us find a way. God is a generous God who desires to bless us, not that we might always get what we want or can imagine, but God provides us with what we need. God has done this. God has provided her a child. This is a story of not only God's faithfulness, but also Hannah's faithfulness. And we learn this in the last part of 1 Samuel chapter 2, begins in verse 1. My heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one besides you, there is no rock like our God. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings death to the grave and rises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them in the, in, with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. This is a prayer that Hannah is lifting to God as she brings the fulfillment of her promise to God back. This is a prayer she lifts of joy as she gives her son over to Eli for Eli to take for God's service. See, Hannah is a woman of joy. She's a person who declares in this text, rejoice in the Lord, my horn is lifted up. She's comparing herself to a ram whose head has been downtrodden but now has been renewed in strength. Hannah is such a powerful figure of joy. So what does that mean, rejoice in the Lord? We learned from Hannah that joy is not the absence of pain. This woman suffered through unimaginable physical and emotional and relational and communal and spiritual anguish. Joy is not the denial of pain either. We see through Hannah, and more importantly, we see through Jesus, the grief and sorrow are a part of life. 
considered the shortest verse in all of scripture is Jesus wept. He's weeping because the death of his friend Lazarus. And he's experiencing the grief with his two sisters who faced this moment. Jesus was stricken with grief as he struggled with the circumstances of the cross. We learn through Hannah that joy is not circumstantial. We see in Hannah a joy even in the most dire of circumstances. This reminds me of the overly quoted verses from Philippians um, in which Paul says, I can do all things through Christ to strengthen me. If you go a few verses back, you understand this is not a token Christian verse, but you understand the depths by which Paul is declaring these profound words. He writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had not the opportunity to show it. I am saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, joy is not something that's subject to the circumstances we are facing as if joy is the only thing that can make things smooth and easy. In fact, circumstances typically are what rob us and hold us back and prevent us from finding joy in our life. Complaining and comparing and control are just the beginning of the circumstances we often create to steal joy from our lives. But here's the good news. There's always going to be someone smarter or better looking or richer, or more successful, or better liked than either of us. These are the circumstances that we often create in our heart and our mind to rob us from joy. Now, if you haven't noticed, summers here in Baton Rouge, register on the Sweet Mother Mary of God, it's hot outside, register. That's, that's, it's, it's above anything that you can imagine. So when I came here, I had to give up two of my favorite summertime exercises because of the heat, running and cycling. If you don't get out on the road, or uh, whether cycling or running, after you know, 7 a.m., you just might as well not even try for the rest of the day. It's so hot outside. But I was able to pick up one of my favorite pastimes as a result of that, swimming. No matter how hot or how cold, I can jump into the climate-controlled pool at the Paula Manship YMCA. In fact, at the Paula Manship Y, you can actually still swim laps out there up until 40 degrees, okay? So when it dips down to 39, they don't let you in the pool. I tried last year. It was awesome. You see, there's something wonderful about jumping into a cold pool when it's hot outside. That's what joy grounded in Christ is like. It's refreshing when the circumstances around us don't seem reasonable, In Jesus, we find a new way of life. It's not a way that comes and goes, whatever happening is around us. The joy we find in Christ is here to stay. Jesus compares himself to a vine and a branch infused in which we are connected with him. And through this symbiotic journey with Jesus, we find the nourishment we need each day to find hope in dark places, peace in all circumstances, joy even in sorrow. Jesus said, as the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you 
and that your joy may be complete. You see, through Jesus, we are gaining a new perspective, broadening our understanding of life, seeing that in the minutia, there is still blessings of life, discovering joy when it doesn't seem possible. Through Jesus, we discover not fleeting moments of happiness and fulfillment, but complete joy. Joy that makes Christ's joy complete. All of this does not come by just a general belief or fondness for Jesus. This comes when we choose to follow Jesus, to have confidence that he knows what he's talking about and he knows where he is leading us, that his way is worth reshaping within our life. Joy is grounded in confidence in Jesus. The gentlemen of the Monty Python's Flying Circus have brought us decades of laughter. Some of you will be quoting these things to the rest of your head. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries. Or it's only a flesh wound. One of my favorite moments from Monty Python is a song called Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. We're going to listen to a small clip of that here. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. And always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten There's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps Don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle That's the thing Always look on the bright side of life Kind of getting the picture here, right? The joy is not circumstantial. It's the choice each day to look at the circumstances we are facing and still find joy that's rooted in Christ. Hopefully that song will be stuck in your head the rest of the day. At least the whistle. We have the choice each day to either fill up or to empty our lives. To either fill up or empty the lives of others. Jesus' invitation is to rethink what's in our bucket. Instead of a bucket filled with fleeting happiness or temporary content or conditional fulfillment, Jesus invites us to fill our lives with joy that comes from God's bountiful generosity to us. As you carry your bucket with you this week, consider how you might be filled with joy. Look to the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus, which emboldens us to know God's love for us. And as you carry your bucket this week, consider how you might fill the buckets of your neighbors and your coworkers and strangers and people very different from you with joy.